Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Justin Hall. You guys are hot. Like, do two of you want to go back to my place and have a threesome? It's like, fuck yeah, yeah. That and more. But before that, you might recall, Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site, risk-show.com. And Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and loved it. Well, now, Chris and his business partner, Matan, have created One Month Rails, a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials to teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build the first web application, like a simple photo-sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person to help you out. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. <laughs> Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you're helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Smokey Hormel. Behind me now, we're calling today's episode Living Big, because these are three stories today of people choosing a, a bigger way to be, or at least a more adventurous way to be. We're going to start with the comic book artist, a brilliant illustrator, Justin Hall. You can see his remarkable work at justinhallcomics.com. Here he is now, knocking it out of the park at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles, where Risk is every fourth Thursday. It's Justin Hall with a story we call Bears, Booze, and Balls. So um, I was all set to be a little bit intimidated because I'm not a performer, I'm not a comedian or an actor, I'm a cartoonist, but this is actually a place of power for comic geeks. We're in the back of Meltdown Comic Books Mm -hmm. store, which is incredible. So I'm drawing strength from the kind of the stones here, kind of like magma from the New Mutants. Anyone? (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, so... Uh, I, I am thankful for uh, San Francisco, and I know that's a little bit weird to kind of say that for a Los Angeles audience, but I love my city. I've been living there for almost 20 years, and I'm still kind of wildly in love with my city. And there's this moment where, you know, you move to a city, and then there's another moment when you actually arrive in the city. And that only in San Francisco moment, that kind of night of, of when I realized I was actually in San Francisco and it was part of me and I was part of it, it started in a bar, the Hole in the Wall bar, Anyone recognize that? Which, okay, all right. So the Hole in the Wall bar was the best bar in the world in 1997. Or at least it felt like that for a mid-20s gay boy who had kind of mixed and antagonistic feelings about gay culture. I don't care about Madonna. I, uh, I hate cologne. Uh, and I have the fashion sense of a walrus. I mean, I, I dress in comic book t-shirts every day and my, my mother just stopped buying my pants for me just not that, not that long ago. <laughs> So I'm, you know, I'm all about cocksucking and man butt fucking, but like the rest of the rest of the the rest of the identity is kind of problematic. So, um, so when I walked into Hole in the Wall, it was this kind of profound revelation, this like paradigm shift. Where I walked in, and they weren't playing a share remix; they were playing the Stooges, and. On the, the screen, which was this kind of like broken television hung by chicken wire above the, the, the bar, they were playing Turkish oil wrestling, which you're actually allowed, if anyone hasn't, doesn't know what that is, you're actually allowed to leave and check it out because it's so awesome. Um, but it's, uh, and there was, there's a bunch of kind of grizzled bikers that would hang out by the bar, and every time they did a round of shots, they would clang this cowbell, like ching, 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 and grab their shot glasses and slam them on the, on the, on the bar, boom, 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 and eat a, um, a dog bone from a, a basket of dog bones. So just this like wonderful group of people. Um, there was also, there, you know, there was always um, uh, this one guy who looks like Ham- Sammy Hagar in a really particularly bad night, who was always buck naked with a, like a long, like flowing mane of split ends, who would kind of parading around the bar, clutching this huge plastic champagne glass full of some kind of liquid. I don't know what. Also, some kind, of, uh, usually a guy in a, le- in a rubber outfit who was 
uh, lying in the trough urinal in the back. And it, it was usually a couple of these guys, right? So one of them I actually found out later was a, a German physicist who was so brilliant, he actually was responsible for organizing and arranging uh, Einstein's papers. So brilliant German physicist by day, trough urinal piss queen by night, which is, <laughs> that's awesome, right? That's awesome. So I feel like I found my tribe, I found my people. Um, there was... <laughs> Um, <laughs> so there was one night when, in particular where it really all kind of came to a head. So I, I you know, immediately became a regular of this bar. And within like about two months, um, I was sitting by the lopsided pool table and started chatting and flirting with this wiry, bald, tattooed guy in an Einstein's Neubotten t-shirt named Wolf. And we were, you know, realized pretty quickly that we had no place to go, that we both had roommates and we couldn't really do anything. At that moment, this big kind of burly, butch, like shirtless, bearded, you know, bear guy kind of came barreling up to us and was like, hey guys, like, you guys are hot. Like, you, do two of you want to go back to my place and have a threesome? It's like, fuck yeah, yeah, I mean, of course we do. Hell yeah. This is San Francisco, yeah, okay. So, so we, you know, hopped in a cab and, and went to his place and which was this beautiful Victorian, really well-appointed Victorian apartment. And it's always kind of funny to run into these like really butch guys in the bars, and then you get to their apartments, and they're really, and that's a terrible thing, way to describe it, really faggy. So, like, you know, kind of the white couch, and literally the refrigerator magnets that were, like, Michelangelo's David, with all the different, like, outfits to, to outfit, you know, to the, well, the cowboy outfit, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> So he also had one of those Pomeranians, the kind of, the like gay puff dogs, you know, those really faggy puff dogs, named Fluffy. So, so Fluffy was really excited to see us, like really, really, ha kind of disturbingly happy to see us. So uh, he introduced us to Fluffy and then immediately, you know, stripped his clothes off and we all joined suit and we jumped into bed together, started rolling around. Now, you know, unfortunately the bear was really drunk and... I was having a really hard time kind of performing. Also, Wolf kept on grabbing our balls, like a lot of ball grabbing. And I don't mind a little roughhousing with the boys. Like that's, that's cool, that's cool. I'm, I'm not, but I'm not a cock and ball torture guy, right? And he was really going for it. So, you know, and, and the bear in particular was like, you know, lay off, lay off, lay off my balls. So I, I kind of turned my attention to the bear and I was, you know, sucking his dick. And then he eventually just started kind of nodding off and passing out, which is, which is not really what you want to have happen when you're giving someone a blowjob. It's actually kind of demoralizing. Um, so eventually I, I really, okay, I, I need to turn my attention. But, but, you know, so I'm blowing him, he's passing out. And then suddenly from behind, Wolf gets from behind and, and just tug, like really tugs my boss, just like, like that, like right out the back. I'm like, okay, I have to deal with this now. This is getting too much, right? This is... So I kind of spin around and I'm like, okay, what's the deal? Like really, what, what's happening here? Um, and, and he said, well, what I really want to do, I, I want to take your, your balls, pull them out and stuff them in your own ass. <laughs> Now, I like to... So, for those of you with, with, with testicles in the audience, um, so I, I do like to think of myself as having kind of low-hanging balls and kind of nice, kind of, you know, but they don't do that, right? They're not, 
And so I told him, I said, look, you know, they don't really do that. And he said, no, no. Like, if you take the time, if you really love, like, pull, pull out your testicles and really work with them and spend the time with them, why the judgment? Why the hate, people? Like, if, if you take the time with them and really spend the time, any man, any man can get his testicles up his own asshole. All right. So I, I said, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, that's a wonderful sentiment. Um, I don't, I'm, we're not doing that tonight. That's not, that's not on the, you know, not the cards. And can't we just blow each other like normal people? Right. And to which he said, actually, I'm a fetishist. And this is the only thing that actually gets me off. So we kind of have to do this or else I'm, I'm not interested. And I, you know, at that point, I kind of like, Meh, you know, <laughs> and, and kind of turned back to the bear, hoping he had woken up by now. But of course, he was passed out cold. And that was disappointing. But then I noticed this flurry of activity by his feet. And Fluffy had jumped up on the bed and was lick, just going to town on his feet, just like just licking and slurping and getting really into it, just like loving this guy's feet, giving him the best shrimp job. Yes, that is a term, shrimping, um, that, that I'd ever seen. Just remarkable, remarkable. And Wolf and I were kind of transfixed like, oh, by this tableau, like, holy shit. Like, and every once in a while, the bear would kind of half wake up and kind of, no, Fluffy, no, no, fl Fluffy, no. And Fluffy would kind of stop for a moment and kind of pop up like a meerkat, like, and, and kind of look and just wait. And then, and the bear would kind of pass back out again. And the Fluffy would be like, and, and Fluffy, Fluffy was making his way up. Like he had an agenda here, right? So he was, he was going up the, you know, inch by hairy inch of this guy's legs, like, uh, you know. the most thorough tongue bath I've ever seen in my life. And it's, um, and he got all the way up, to, you know, to the ass, rim job, motorboating the balls, the whole, I mean, the whole thing. And again, like, you know, the, the bear would ever, would all kind of wake up, no, fluffy, no, fluffy. <laughs> kind of wait for him, pass out, boom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, at a certain, <laughs> At a certain point, I was just like, okay, it's, it's, you know, this is fascinating, but it's 3 a.m. and I'm done. I'm done, right? So I, I turned to Wolf and I'm like, okay, that's, I, I think we should go now. It's, it's about time. We should kind of, clearly this is not Fluffy's first time at the rodeo. Like, I mean, this is, you know, this probably happens every night between the two of them and it's a spe their special time and I'm going to just leave them. Um, but Wolf was like, you know, I'm, I'm actually not done. I'm going to stay and you, you can go now. And, uh, and that was a kind of moral dilemma, right? This kind of uh, ethical quandary, if you will. Um, and it, it's funny because, you know, Miss Manners doesn't write about this stuff, so I don't really know what's the right decision here, but do I leave the man who I've never met before, um, you know, his, his questionable honor, you know, to the, his dog and the other man who I've never met before who wants to grab his balls and stuff him in his ass? I, so... I eventually I was like I, I have to leave I have to sleep I'm 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 gone right so but I did try to extract a promise from Wolf I said look can you promise me that he won't wake up tomorrow with his balls and his dog up his own ass <laughs> and and Wolf gave me this kind of like smirk that was like kind of evil and he was like no of course not you know like 
so completely unconvincing. Um, so, but I was like, I, I, I gotta go, I gotta go. So I, I left and I was a little bit kind of perturbed, you know, like, did I make the right decision and stuff? And then I started walking down the, the stairs and out into the street and the frown turned upside down and I was like, I'm in San Francisco. Like, <laughs> this is the moment. Like, I, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the sign, like, you know, this wonderful, beautiful, perverted, amazing city that, like, is gonna give me all these stories that I can tell for years. Like, I landed, I stuck the landing, you know, like. Um, and, and I do believe that, like, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation, I don't believe in afterlife, I believe we're given this kind of life, this one moment, you know, where you can kind of, you take advantage of it and grab life by its balls and even stuff it up its own ass if you have to. Yeah. As a coda, um, so the next morning I was actually on BART, which is the San Francisco uh, metro system, and I was on the train, I was kind of hung over and kind of holding onto the pole there, and I looked over, you know, my train stopped at the station, and the, the doors opened, and on the station platform I saw the bear, there he was, and I ne- mind you, I'd never seen him before in my life, or never seen him after, but there he was, and I was like, oh, oh my God, it's you, are you okay? Like, I felt so bad about leaving you with the ball-stretching guy and the dog, and, the, and, and like, are you okay? And he looked at me, and as did all the other people on the platform, and everyone kind of started etching away from me. <laughs> like, and I realized this, this man did not recognize me at all. Like, he had no idea who I was. He had no idea. And I was just kind of like, like that, and then the door is just, shunk, and, the, and the train passed. So. Thank you guys, you're awesome. So. for you to show me those huge hairy nets you got. Shove it up your ass. This is getting kinky. You have all the kinky angles that are in right now. I think it's a terrible shame. Oh, don't be such a booby doodle. Don't worry about it. Just relax. Get your foot out of my ass. I'm sorry you don't like it. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. If I hear another sound out of that thing, I'll go ram it so far up your ass you'd be farting music for a year. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Farting music for a year. <laughs> Have you ever heard that term, golden shower? Huh? Somebody just pee on me, pee on my chest. You peed on yourself there. Yes, so did you. Is that fucked up or what? No. Yeah, that's fucked up. You really are sick. You sick bastards. You're obviously obsessed with sex. I was wondering why you knew so much about the sex ray. honor to be sharing a story for Risk, because Risk has really made a huge impact in my life. To understand why Risk has made such an impact, I need to take you back a few years ago to the spring of 2011. I was living in Buffalo, New York, working in customer service at a biotechnology manufacturing firm, and I was absolutely miserable. I would come into work every day, work in an office setting with people I hated. I just knew this was not what I wanted to be doing with my life. And the only thing that would give me an escape from that life was listening to podcasts, Risk specifically. Risk was telling stories about people who were doing things with their life, having real life experiences that were challenging themselves to grow. And I felt like that was severely missing from my life. A couple years previous to when I was living in Buffalo, I was living in Brooklyn. And I was living the New York lifestyle that I kind of imagined, which was going to loft parties, dancing in my underwear, having strange encounters with women, ingesting all kinds of toxic substances on a regular basis. It was really like the party lifestyle that I dreamed about before I ever moved to New York when I was in college. 
I thought to myself, this is the person I want to be. But all that ended when I lost my job in New York and I had to move back to Buffalo because I was broke and had really no other option. And then my dad got me this job at this biotech manufacturing firm and I was just kind of stuck there. And my only escape was listening to podcasts. Every day I would escape my life and go off to someplace else and it was the only thing that kept me going during that time. That was all going fine until one day when my boss called me into his office, this guy Tim, who's a quintessential sales corporate guy who was this VP of sales and marketing and somehow I ended up reporting to him. And he sits me down and he says, Mark, we can't have you listening to music at your desk anymore. The CEO sees you with your headphones in, he thinks you're just dicking around or something. No more music at your desk. I was absolutely devastated when he told me that. I couldn't imagine that job without podcasts. It was just kind of facing the reality of where I was and being in the present moment. In that present moment was just not an option for me at the time. So I said, no. You have to let me listen to podcasts if you want me to work here. This is It's either me with podcasts or I'm gone. And he looked at me and thought I was crazy, but he relented and he said, yes, you can keep listening to podcasts if it's that important to you. And when he looked at me like that, it kind of made something go off in my head to think if not being able to listen to a podcast was going to have this much of an impact on me, something bigger than just podcasts was going on. So the following weekend, I went to an African dance class to try and change things up. And it was there that I met Christy. Christy was a beautiful blonde-haired girl with tattoos. She just had this charm about her that was just really something magical. We locked eyes from across the room and just kind of had this instant connection. So I started trying to kind of impress her with my dance moves, and one thing led to another, and we started talking after class. And she told me that she was just in town in Buffalo for the summertime. She was visiting her family in between her trips between Thailand and Peru, where she was going in the fall. And I thought to myself, wow, you are living the kind of life that I want to be living. Christy and I start hanging out, we start dating, and she says to me, is this what you want to be doing with your life? Are you looking for something more? And I said, absolutely, I'm looking for something more. And she said, well, if you're interested, we're looking for somebody to run the business at, at the yoga school where I work next season. Maybe you can take over the business side of things and I can just teach yoga. And I thought to myself, okay, when's the next time a beautiful girl is going to offer me a job in southern Thailand? I might as well go for it. Then came the challenging part, which is breaking the news to my parents. I'm the youngest of three boys. I was the only one that was living in Buffalo. My two older brothers lived in New York. My parents got really used to having me live so close to home. I could come over to their house every Sunday night for dinner. I could be in their safe environment. I was on this boring but very stable trajectory in life, and they were really happy about that. So when I sat him down on that Sunday dinner and I said, I'm moving to Thailand, they basically flipped out. My dad especially was really, really unhappy about it. And not that that's really surprising to me. My dad is a lawyer. He's a pretty straight-laced guy. He's lived in Buffalo basically his entire life. I didn't expect him to be open to this idea. My mom, on the other hand, is a little more worldly and is a little more balanced when it comes to giving me advice. She only kind of wants my, has my best interest in mind. And so when she was really against the idea, it, that hurt. That was really, really difficult. She told this story to me about when I was maybe three or four years old and I was about to leave the house and I didn't want to put shoes on. 
And she said, Mark, you can go, that's fine, but just put some shoes on. And I said, no, Mom, I can't do it. I got no time for shoes. I got to see the world. I'll see you later. And I walked out of the house without shoes on. Lo and behold, a few minutes later, I came back. I stepped on a rock, and I cut my foot. I was bleeding all over the place. I was really apologetic, and I was crying. And I said, Mom, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I should have listened to you. And she said, Mark... I don't want to be right again. I don't want you to come back and apologize to me again now that you want to go to Thailand because I just don't want to be right. I have a bad feeling about this and I don't want to be right and I don't want you to come back and say I'm sorry again. And so I went to Thailand and it was amazing. was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. I was living on this island, meeting people from all over the world, practicing yoga and meditation every day. I quit drinking, I quit smoking weed, I was becoming this different person. I was so excited to come home and tell my dad how wrong he was to be against this idea because it was going to be so much more focused and employable when I got home. Everything was going great. I was just in this beautiful place. There was this one moment specifically, I think it was the first or second day I was there, I was on the back of Christy's motorcycle when she picked me up from the pier. We were driving around and the wind was flowing through my hair and I was taking in the scenery and just this amazing experience, the rock formations and the water. If you've ever been to Southern Thailand or seen pictures, it's incredible. This is what I'm here for. Fuck Buffalo. This is the best decision I've ever made in my life coming over here. One of the things that happened while I was gone that really spurred on this transformation while I was in Thailand was that I participated in a retreat that Christy put together around Christmas time where she invited a shaman from Peru to come to Thailand to lead a ceremony where we would all drink ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, if you're not familiar, is a vine that grows in the Amazon rainforest that evolves in a shamanic tradition where people would take the vine and turn it into this like drink which is one of the most foul-tasting things you will ever drink in your entire life, but it will make you trip so hard. And so we were in this ceremony where there was a whole group of us, and this shaman named Herman, who was from Peru, came with his guitar, and he sat us down in this room lit by candles, and he gave us the instructions of how to drink the medicine and what it was going to do to us and what to do if we get sick, what to do if we get scared. And it was very quiet. And one by one, he called us up to this little altar where he poured us a little dose of the ayahuasca. And it was just disgusting. I felt like I was going to throw it up right when I drank it. But then I kept it down and I went and sat back down. Herman blew out the candles and we sat in darkness for about half an hour. Herman started playing this Spanish guitar and it's very quiet, very easygoing at first. And then he plays another song and it's a little more upbeat, it's a little more intense. And then he plays a third song. By the time about the third or fourth song starts, I just, I'll just i never forget the strum of the guitar. It was like... Bruh. And all of a sudden, something just awoke inside of me. I started to have these visions. I started to see this grandmother spirit. People refer to the ayahuasca as the grandmother plant of the rainforest. And I saw this dark and mysterious Latina woman who was kind of floating in the air. She had this dark and silvery hair. She had this purple poncho on, and she was in complete control of everything that was going on. And if I resisted just even for a little bit, she kind of turned her head, and I saw this really evil side of her. And I thought, okay, I don't want to see any more of that. So I just didn't resist at all for the rest of the time. 
and I would ask her these questions. I would say, I stopped drinking recently. Is that a good idea? Should I continue to abstain from alcohol? And she said, yes, Mark. Anything that contracts your consciousness. Yoga and meditation will take you in one direction, and alcohol and marijuana will take you in another. And anything that contracts your consciousness, you should have nothing to do with. And I said, okay, I won't drink anymore. And I thought to myself, okay, well, what should I do with my life? I'm here in, in Thailand. I'm, I'm studying yoga. Should I be a yoga teacher? And she said, well, Mark, teaching yoga is one thing that you can do with your life. But really, your life goal, what you're here to do, is to share the light that's inside of you. You have a beautiful light inside of you, and you are to share that light with the world. Teaching yoga is one way to do that, but in anything that you do, in walking down the street, and in your work, and whatever it is that you do, your goal is to share your light with the world. And I thought, wow, now I get it. Now I know what there is for me to be doing with my life. Now I have this clear path to walk down that I never would have gotten if it wasn't for this experience. So the ceremony went on for another few hours, and it ended, and we all shared the experiences that we had with each other. And my trip went on for the next couple months, and I continued to have this vision of that. That message really resonated with me and stuck with me for the whole time I was in Thailand. In my yoga practice, in my meditation, it all stuck with me to share my light with the world. Another thing that really helped me transform and grow while I was there was I got into rock climbing. Climbing, if you've ever done it, you know what an amazing experience it is to climb and to experience new challenges and to overcome those challenges. It's really quite incredible. Southern Thailand is a mecca for rock climbing. People come from all over the world to climb there and to experience what is there. The second day I was there, I went up about 10 feet off the ground on one of the rock routes and I freaked out and started crying and had to come back down. As I got more comfortable with it, as I got progressively more brave and strong, I started to take on some more challenging routes. And about five months into the trip, I was starting to get pretty confident in myself. And I'm out climbing with a group of friends one day. It's towards the end of the day, and it's time to what they call clean the route, which is take down the equipment that we had been put up to climb the route. So I volunteered to do that. So I climbed to the top of the route and was taking the equipment down as I went, and I get to the top and I start descending back down. And I'm pretty sure that I've managed to take the equipment down in the right way. I'd never something that I've never really quite done before, but I'm feeling more confident and I'm feeling like I did it right. I get to about 10 feet off the ground, and one of the German women that I was climbing with that day said, Well done, Mark. Super. And right as she says that, I hear the one sound you don't want to hear when you're descending down a rock face which is a snap. I fall about 10 feet and I land on my side. Immediately the wind is knocked out of me. And the guide that I was climbing with, another German woman named Eva, she yells to the boat that took us to the rock face that day. She yells to call an ambulance. She immediately knows something went terribly wrong. And so I'm lying down on the ground trying to catch my breath and the first words that I can say once the wind kind of comes back into my lungs is what the fuck just happened. And I scan my body to see if I'm, how badly hurt I am, and I immediately feel a sharp pain in my ribs. But I can also feel that I can move my fingers and toes, and I realize that I'm not paralyzed. But I also realize that I badly sprained my ankle and that I have a really sharp pain in my neck. The guide that I'm with starts to kind of try and stabilize me. She wraps a raincoat around my neck, and with the help of two or three people they get me down onto the boat that took us to the rock face that day. This is the first ambulance ride I've ever taken in my entire life. 
They take me on to a small hospital that's on the island that I'm living on where they take x-rays to find out how serious the injury is. And at this point, I'm still thinking to myself, okay, this isn't that bad. Maybe I'll be laid up for a couple weeks until I feel a little more comfortable till my rib heals. Maybe I can still go on with my trip. I can still plan to go to Vietnam, to go to Cambodia, to do all these things that I wanted to do before I left Asia. It all depends on what the results of this x-ray that they're about to take. So the doctor comes back and tells me that I indeed did fracture my spine. Luckily, it wasn't seriously fractured. Otherwise, I could have been paralyzed from that all the way down. So I would have had no movement from my shoulders down to my feet. They tell me I need to go to a different hospital on a bigger island, on Phuket, the next island over. And one of my friends from the yoga school comes with me. And when I woke up the next morning, I had to call my parents and I had to tell them what had happened. I had to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't listen to you. I'm sorry I'm putting you through this. I'm sorry that I broke my neck. I'm sorry that I'm in Thailand and I'm not someplace else where you'd rather I be right now, but I'm sorry. My parents said, don't apologize. Don't apologize. We're just happy you're okay. So my mom flew from Buffalo to Thailand, and a couple weeks later, she flew back to Buffalo with me. I was wearing a neck brace. Four days after being back in Buffalo, I went in for surgery and had metal rods implanted in my neck to stabilize the fracture. I had the next several months to walk and live in a neck brace and to sit and think while I sat around my parents' house in Buffalo, New York, this protective nest that I'm so thankful was there, the place that I tried to escape so adamantly several months previously. I tried to get as far away from Buffalo, as far away from my parents as I physically was able to get. And here I was, back in the place where it all started. I couldn't really drive, I couldn't really walk that well. I just had to sit and had to let my bones heal. And I had a lot of time to think about why all this happened. I'm one of those people that believes everything happens for a reason. And I'm not saying that it's like some kind of higher power dictates why everything is happening. I'm not saying God meant to challenge me and that's why this all happened. I think this happened so that I have a message to share. That light that I have to shine on the world, this is part of that experience. This is why this happened. So I can share with the world that life is a gift. Every single day is a gift. Every day I wake up in the morning, I think to myself, wow, I can't believe I'm alive. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to be alive. You don't have to live through an experience like I did to get to that point. Anybody can feel that way. It just takes knowing that this could happen to you, this could happen to anybody you love. You don't have to be doing something crazy like climbing rocks in southern Thailand to get to this point. To have those types of experiences that challenge your existence and that make you realize how fragile life is. That's why I'm telling this story here today. Life is a gift, and you shouldn't waste a single second. This is Risk. This is Immigrant Union. 
Behind me now, and we just heard from Mark Gabriel Amagon. Mark is a good friend of the show and of the Story Studio. He did that same story when we did the show in Boston a while back, but the recording got all flubbed up, so we did a radio version instead. Wonderful guy. And Mark just happens to be a Risk fan who first reached out to us a long time ago just to uh, connect, share some story pitches. Listen, right now, we are looking for stories about the holidays, going home for the holidays, fiascos, wonderful, lovely, joyous stories, horror stories, anything surrounding, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, that time of year. Please pitch us your stories. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions, and you might be on this year's holiday show. Our last story comes to us today from Megan Voss. The last time we brought Risk to North Carolina, we taught a workshop there. We do that often when we come to town, storytelling workshop, and Megan shared this story, and I thought, I got to record that one for the podcast. So here she is now, Megan Voss, with a story we call War and Peace. My sophomore year of college, I did something a bit crazy. I signed up to be an archery counselor, and I had never done that before, but the camp that I applied to was right down the street from my parents' house, and they were like, we'll train you, we'll give you a good chunk of money, and we'll even give you a place to sleep. And I'm like, hey, it could be fun, you know, teaching kids giving my gifts to the next generation, that really appealed to me. And so I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Even though I honestly haven't shot a bow and arrow since high school. What I didn't realize was that this camp had a reputation in the town that my parents and I lived in, but we hadn't been living there long enough to know what that reputation was. It turns out that this camp was for spoiled, rotten, little rich kids from cities. Like, the first hint that I got that this was true was we had a whole week as counselors preparing for the kids to come to camp. Some trucks came up one day, and a bunch of bags were unloaded, and I'm like, what's going on here? And one of my supervisors is like, oh, we're going to unpack the kids' bags for them. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I mean, what camp has counselors unpacked the kids' bags for them? I mean, I felt like we were preparing them to check into a hotel, not a summer camp. And when the kids got there, I also remember one of the other counselors calling them Japs. And I was like, Japs? There are no Asians at this camp. I didn't know that it stood for Jewish American Princess. 
I had never heard the term in my life before. I mean, looking at these kids, it didn't seem like that term applied to them. They seemed like good kids. But it turns out that was just the honeymoon period. That first week when everybody's so happy to see each other. The worst, by far, were the teenage girls and the preteen girls. The absolute worst behavior I had ever seen in kids. So it started out small. Like, it wasn't anything I could call them on right away. They liked to play dumb and ask these loaded questions like, Hey Megan, where do babies come from? Hey Megan, can you tell me why my vagina does what it does during a period? Or, hey Megan, do you have a boyfriend or do you have a girlfriend? Tell us all about it. They would ask them so innocently, like you knew that they were ribbing you, but you couldn't call them on it. I mean, their idea of fun was never archery, which is what I was supposed to be teaching them. Their idea of fun was, let's see how uncomfortable we can make our counselor. And so it escalated from the questions to outright behaviors that, I mean, on what planet is it acceptable for you to stand in the middle of my archery range and pull down your pants and waddle around in your underwear? And on what planet is it acceptable for you to shoot arrows into the woods, like pretending that you can't possibly aim at the target, which is three feet in front of you? Oh no, you have to aim straight up and shoot the arrows into the woods. This became a war back and forth between me and these kids. They would do something to annoy me. I would do something to stop that behavior and call them on their shit. They hated me because I would tell them that question is inappropriate, or no, I am not going to let you sit here and insult me, or no, I'm not going to let you just shoot arrows into the woods without taking responsibility for it, so go get my arrow, please. We would just go back and forth and back and forth all summer. I mean, these kids were little monsters, and not the cool Lady Gaga kind. They were just evil. <laughs> I kept pushing back because I'm like, I'm not going to let these spoiled, rotten kids win. Unfortunately, my boss didn't quite agree with that. He told me several times, Megan, you can't make them go fetch arrows from the woods. Megan, you can't just kick them out of the range unless there's like an obvious misbehavior. You have to explain to them what they're doing wrong. And it sounded perfectly reasonable, but in my head, it was like, you're taking their side, man. You're letting them win. What are you doing? I mean, granted, they're not like the boys who tend to punch each other when they're misbehaving, but I know how to call these girls on their shit, and I'm not about to stop doing it. My boss, again, pushed me to be a bit more tolerant. He said that I should try some bargaining strategies and see if I could get them to do some archery in return for something they might consider to be a bit more fun. And the one thing I figured out was that the girls really admired my friendship bracelets, which are these 
little woven bracelets you make out of embroidery floss and I happen to know how to make some very complex stitches. So I figured out that I could get about 20 minutes of relatively calm archery out of them if I promised to sit down and show them how to weave friendship bracelets at the end of each session. Not all of the girls in this group were rotten eggs. There was this one girl named Claire that everybody loved. She would always move over at mealtimes to make sure you had a seat. She would always give you this amazingly bright little smile that just would lift your day to new heights even if you were having the crappiest day of your life. It was like she was the complete polar opposite of all the girls in her cabin and the odd thing was that I never saw them pick on her for it. They actually loved her for it, too. It was a kind of superpower that I really wish I had when I was working at this camp. I really enjoyed spending time with her, and I wish I could have gotten to know her better, but all my time was being spent on this war that I was having with the other kids in her group. It took all my energy to stay on my A-game to make sure that these kids did not get the best of me. I mean, God damn it! I was going to make sure that these kids actually learned something about how the rest of the world lived before they left for the summer. I wasn't going to let them win at all. It was a Sunday. It was our night off. It was the last period of the day, a free period, where the kids get to pick what activities they want to do and go do them. And I was walking out to the archery range, and I saw my arch nemeses, these middle school girls playing soccer. I kind of rolled my eyes and kept walking all the way out to the archery field at the edge of the camp. I sat there and waited to see if any kids were going to come out. As I was waiting, I realized that it was a lot quieter out there than it should be. I shouldn't be able to hear the birds. I should be hearing sounds of laughter and screaming and soccer balls being thrown around. So I turned around and saw that the girls, they weren't playing soccer. They had all stopped, and someone was on the ground. I ran over there, and I found that Claire was on the ground. She wasn't breathing. The kids were off to the side, and they were crying. My hearing started to fade in and out. My, my vision fading a bit as well, and I was really afraid that I was going to pass out, but I, I held on, and the counselors who were there rushed in, and we immediately began to do CPR on her. They tore her shirt off, and her face was already turning blue. I recall the hockey counselor uh, giving her compressions, and 
I remember wanting to grab him and be like, no, no, don't push that hard. You're going to break her. She is so thin and fragile and she was so small looking on the ground. I just thought he's going to snap her in two if he pushes any harder. I remember a golf cart swooping in. The nurse was on it and she brought the defibrillator as she opened the case, this alarm started to sound going, eh, 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 and I was like, what the fuck do you need an alarm on a defibrillator case for? Feeling as helpless as I was, I'm like, the one thing I could do is pick up this goddamn defibrillator case. And I ran away from the scene and I heaved it as far as I possibly could away from Claire. And it sailed across the soccer field and crashed on the other side and finally that noise stopped. The ambulance came across the soccer field and by that time Claire's face was almost entirely blue. I remember watching them take her away. She looked so limp. And I remember the nurse telling me that while she was doing CPR, she had felt Claire's life slip away. As much as she tried to breathe life into this little girl, it just wasn't staying. I, I have never seen a staff so well trained before I worked at this camp. I mean, we did everything we possibly could to save this girl's life. There was CPR, there was the defibrillator, there was hell, any of my fellow counselors even knew how to intubate her. And even the emergency workers didn't know how to do that. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't. We all realized that she probably wasn't going to make it through the night, but we remained cautiously optimistic for the sake of the kids. I remember walking around aimlessly, not knowing what to do or where to be, and somehow I wandered over to the cabin where these girls, my arch nemeses, the kids I had been fighting with all summer lived and when I opened the door I found a sea of tears they were all on the ground tissues everywhere wailing about the loss of their friend and I remember walking inside and grabbing the very first one that I could reach and pulling her into my chest and just hugging her so tightly and saying, I'm sorry. I am so very sorry. And at the time, that might have been me saying, I'm sorry about Claire's death. I'm sorry you lost your friend. But I think what it really was was I'm sorry I forgot your humanity. I'm sorry I forgot that you are a human being just as much as me.
all for this week folks this is damian gerardo behind me now and i'm gearing up to bring risk to minneapolis for the first time ever with a storytelling workshop at brave new workshop on the 3rd of december and a risk live show at brave new workshop on the 4th of december so go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets and tell all your friends in Minneapolis we're coming out. Then on December 12th, we are back in Seattle and with Dan Savage. So come on out Seattle, that's going to be a great show on December 12th. You can always find out more information at risk-show.com/tour. Don't forget that Risk is a maximum fun podcast. We're part of the Maximum Fun Network of podcasts, and like all the podcasts on the Maximum Fun Network, we are listener supported. We very much rely on the help of the people who love what we do. So if you do love what we do, go to maximumfun.org/donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>